I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Melissa, I, I wanted to start by um, asking you a little bit about your own history in relation to education mm-hmm. um, before we get into the substance of the book. Um, and I just thought it would be interesting for our audience for you to talk about why education became a sort of passion of yours to work on. Your mum was obviously a big education Caroline was obviously a big mm. education campaigner. So just thought it'd be interesting for you to talk a little bit about the history of, okay. of how you came to write this book. Yeah, well, it's true she was a big education campaigner to the point that even today I'll be at meetings and I'll be introduced and then somebody will say over to Caroline, which is uh, always a little bit disconcerting. Um, and you won't make that mistake, and I'm sure. I won't. So I, I think there's two, if I, if I look back, I think there's two reasons why I have passion for education. The first is that I'm probably, and you are probably as well, part of, although you're a lot younger than me, a generation of the children of people who believed in comprehensive education, believed in state education, but of that class background where probably most of your peers or your parents' peers would have been sending their children to selective or private schools. So in my case, I started out at Norland Place wearing a boater and a check dress. It's a small school in West London. Um, subsequently, George Osborne went there, a few other people as well, but that's just to give you a flavour of what kind of a school it was. Wow. Yeah, I know, you didn't know that, did you? <laughs> no, no. Is it the idea of me and George Osborne in the same space, all the boater and the dress? No, more you and George Osborne, I think. <laughs> uh. um, so I can still remember going down to Norland Place. And anyway, and my brothers were at Westminster. Um, so Norland Place was a private... It was a private prep school. Oh, I see. It was a private prep school, yeah. And then I was actually put in <clears throat> twice for the entrance exams for St Paul's when I was eight and when I was 11. Oh, really? Because I think, and to be fair to my parents, I think they were anxious in a way. They wanted to know that I was keeping up with my peers. And actually, I'm my mother's archivist, and I found the results. I passed both times, I have to say that, otherwise you'll lose, you'll lose belief in me. And so my brothers went to Westminster, where my father had gone. I didn't know that. I, know, I, think, I thought oh, they all you went to Holland Park. No, no, but we're coming on to that. Right. Sorry, I'll get on to it. <laughs> I haven't so, done my research. No, I think I, I've proved this. No, but I mean, I think the important thing is that, about this is in a way to show how unusual and in, and in yeah. a way I think courageous my parents yeah. were. So Hilary and Stephen were at Westminster School where they were known as I think 
Ben Major and Ben Minor. And my dad had been at Westminster and hated it. And actually, my uncle wanted to say at his funeral that he was a deeply unpopular pupil there as well. But we said, you can't say that at somebody's funeral. Um, but he hadn't enjoyed it. But of course, was completely the product of a Westminster education. So my mother was American. And she became very interested in the development of comprehensive education in this country, in believed in local good public education in the real sense of the word, public, common, not, you know, public. Mm. I, I mean, As R in private. well, R.H. Tawney said in the 1920s that to call private schools public was the most comically inappropriate term yeah. you could imagine. So they decided to take us all out of private education and send us to the burgeoning local schools. So I was sent to Fox Primary and Hillary and Stephen started at Holland Park. And then we all subsequently... I'm sorry to date this. Yeah, what, yeah what, this what, is yeah. a long what, time no, ago. You, I, I, I promise you this is not to sort no, of no, emphasise it, you know. Uh, but but uh, what year was this? Because it's good, quite good context. Uh, so I was 70... the early no no the early sixties. I started right. at Holland Park in sixty eight. Right. And Stephen and Hillary started a, a bit earlier. The thing about so it was Holland... in the sort of mid to late sixties that they mid had this change 60s. of mind. Yeah, and the Labour government was bringing yeah. in comprehensive yeah. education. Yeah. And I mean, there's a sort of hypocrite point there. You how can you yeah. legislate for the rest of yeah. the country and not send your sure. children to local schools? So we did that. But what's so interesting? Well, Holland Park was a, was a pioneer comprehensive that had been started in the late 70s. And of course, the tabloid press still call it the Eton of comprehensive. Yeah. And the only reason they do that is because certain children of Labour ministers, including us, went there. I have to say that all the other Labour ministers' children came and went quite quickly. They tried to call Haverstock My School the Eton of Comprehensive, well, and they? it really so, is not the Eton no, of Comprehensive. No, no, no. I know, and, uh, they, and they was Holland Park. I mean, Holland Park at the moment, it's a very different school now, has 58% children on free school meals, and I think it probably had that amount by that measure when I was there. Can I just ask you, was it, a, I don't mean to drop this, but it was fascinating, but was it a political problem for your dad before you, he went, you went to state schools or not particularly? Well, you know, essentially, I don't know the answer to that. But right. what I do know is that it was quite a kind of interesting problem with wider family afterwards. Again, being my mother's archivist, I'm finding all these letters. Dick Crossman, a big Labour figure, wrote to my parents saying, you're sacrificing your children's future. And um, certain relatives, my mother's American relatives, said, don't do this, don't go down this path. So I got a sense, looking at all that material, what pressure they were under. Oh, amazing. Yeah, and, and of course, now when I look back, I was quite well behaved, but I was also wayward, like a lot of adolescents. And of course, I, I can imagine. I'm tempted that. to ask you what the naughtiest <laughs> thing you've ever done is, oh, and whether yeah. it's running through a wheat field. But I won't. I won't ask. I won't okay. ask you that question. Can I tell you, Ed? I've done a lot naughtier. Than right. That. Okay. Fine. Good. That's a good answer. Um, but my daughters are in the audience. You should so we're be. Not a, going you should there. be a politician. Yeah. <laughs> Poor old Theresa May. That was just like the worst answer yeah. ever. Um, but but I suspect yeah. that my parents were. I wonder if they, they knew that a lot of other people were watching us and where were we going to go and what were we going to turn out to be like. So I salute them for that as well. Oh, they did a swerve. It wasn't just that they sort of just went down the state school route. I mean, they swerved away. They took your, ki your brothers out of private school. They took my brothers out of Westminster. It was quite difficult for Stephen. He was 13. He went from Westminster school to a big At a particular moment, though. Yeah, that, I think that, well, I mean, you know, that, was, that was difficult. But... 
the other thing that was great about my parents, and this is relevant, was that they completely welcomed the world that we went into. So you do find a lot of people going to state schools, even now, that stay within the middle class world, like their children to know the middle class in state schools, encourage that kind of social world. And, you know, my parents were not like that. Everybody was welcome. And my mother, I have to say, then became a governor and chairman of the governors, of chairperson of the governors of Holland Park for 16 years. She was probably called the chairman in those days. Yes, she probably was. Although knowing her, she would have had a wry comment on yes. that. But she also was a scholar of the early comprehensive movement. So she wrote the first analysis of implementation of comprehensive reform and then 15 years on how it was developing. So it's important to say... And just give say, us the date yeah. for comprehensivization. 65, yeah. There was a big movement against, you know, because post-war, as you know, there was the sure, grammar school sure. and, and secondary moderns. And then a sort of argument grew up against that through the 50s. So actually, and so, sorry, forgive my ignorance, but, but basically their swerve, as I called it, to take your brothers out, to put you into a state school, was coinciding with comprehensive, yeah, the, the, what the Labour government was doing. Yeah, they thought, yeah. we've got to be consistent with yeah. this move to comprehensive education. Yeah, or maybe they were also perhaps leaders of that. I mean, right. I think they were... So swerve is not quite a word right, that right. I, no, I, I'm no, coming fair. to, but I mean, yeah. they were sort of part of yeah. it. And actually, when you look back, it was a very important political and social movement, broadly, that period. And to be, I was going to say to be fair to the Labour Party, but I'm trying to say something critical. I don't think the Labour Party has ever been that radical on education Again, but we, we, we might come, we might on to, come that. to that. Yeah. So tell us... Oh, sorry, the other thing yeah. to say is that the, the, the thing that really got me campaigning... So I was, brought, I was brought up in this atmosphere yeah. and surrounded by people saying, oh, my God, you're a comprehensive, yeah. gosh, how terrible, yeah. how your parents have let you down, and, oh, dear, yeah. I'm not going to do you miss the boater? No, I didn't no, right. miss the boater. I didn't. <laughs> and, of course, I, I was then at Holland Park in a period where there was a dissolving of uniform and the yeah. introduction of mixed yeah. ability, so it was quite a radical moment within the radical state project. Yeah. Um, but then my own daughters were born, went to the local schools, and then I saw when it came to secondary transfer, which any parent who's here knows the dreaded word secondary transfer, I suddenly understood where we got to in this period, which was the 1990s. And I got so cross and felt so energised by what I saw happening that that really set me off on this current wave. And this is maybe a hard question to answer, but... If you think about the person you are and the interests you have, what role did your comprehensive school... It was Holland Park, yeah? Yeah. What yeah. role did your comprehensive education play in that, do you think? Well, I think it always, you always risk sounding pious, don't you, when you say, I think it made me a completely different kind of person, but I think the truth is, it, well, it did and it didn't, because we know the role that family and social class pays in, in formation, and that was always there. So one of the biggest criticisms, which I was always very sensitive to, is people say, well, it's all very well you saying you went to Holland Park and you did fine. Of course, coming from your family, you would. And I think we have to accept that education is a, is a sort of alchemy of background and uh, school and what kind of school you went to and then personality and luck and all those things. So I recognise that. But I do, I do think it's made all of us quite different to how we might have been if we carried on down the George Osborne route, just to make the point very clearly. I was, I was, I was struck uh, that you said uh, at the beginning, you know, my father was a very much a product yeah. of Westminster. Yeah. And I wonder what you meant by that. 
Well, I thought it was pretty obvious. Just to anybody who doesn't know, so he was Tony Benn. So that that sort of, and he, well, that sort of, you know, he was an MP at 25. He right. had that kind of confidence. Right. I think he improved vastly with age and experience. Right. I, you know, I loved him dearly, but he definitely yeah. improved. But I'm uh, hoping to do that. Too. Yes, yeah, no, no. no. Uh, Ed, you're, you're, actually, actually, Ed, you're doing, you're doing quite well, and okay, you're a lot thanks, younger. Thanks. Um, but but we, he and I used to have long conversations at the end of his life because my mother died 15 years before he did. So I spent a lot of time with him as the only as the only daughter, and we we loved to chat. And we talked a lot about what his education did and didn't give him. And he was fascinated by my daughter's school. And he did tend to have slight sort of line about it, you know, 77 nationalities, all these languages spoken. And I would say, come on, let's go beyond the sort of that slight soundbite thing and talk about what they're getting and what they're not getting and that you got, because I'm really interested in improving. You know, I don't think it's just non-selection. There we are. There's so much more that needs to be done. But we had a lot of conversations about it. Interesting. Very, that's very interesting. So that takes us very neatly on to your book. And I think it will be useful just before we get into the specifics, and there are a lot of specifics in there, just to ask you the question, what should education be for? Oh, God, I always think this question is so difficult. Oh, really? Well, yeah, I did say that to you in an earlier email, actually. Right. I mean, <laughs> and you know that. I, you, well, you didn't read my email then. I mean, let me answer it this way. There's the sort of a Andrew Adonis, Michael Gove view of education as a set of agreed cause of knowledge as standards of a certain kind. And I think, while I'm not against exams, I'm not against knowledge at all, I, ha I think we have to move, and I think we are moving. We're in a di I think we're moving into a new political moment now, actually, where the broader conception of education, where it's more, in, in a way, a bit more like the private schools are able to do, because they've got huge resources, you know, more personalised, more emotionally aware, more culturally vibrant, but unlike private education, much more rooted in communities, which I think, shorthand, the neoliberal reforms have taken schools away from community involvement. And actually, I think there's so much richness to be had in a school being rooted in a community so that parents and grandparents can be part of education, can come in, that you can connect to things that are going on in the neighbourhood. So a much broader view of education, that's my well, answer. I think that's yeah, I think that's really important. So that's the context for your what you think education is about. Before uh, talking about what you think the future can hold, maybe you should talk, it'd be useful to talk a little bit about the sort of arc of education policy since yeah. the 1990s okay. when you, you know, became passionate about it yeah. and so on. And both the new Labour years yeah. and the um, sort of Gove yeah. and beyond. Yeah. Well, I was quite hopeful at the beginning of the new Labour years, education, 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 and with the end of the dreadful Thatcherite years, which was about disinvestment and, you know, not believing really in state education at all or, you know, so Blair signified a new period. But sorry to say this, quickly became quite disappointed in it. And and after a lot of things... And your kids were in, your, your, your children in, were in school, school at yeah. that, that moment. Yeah, I always called them Blair. I, one, in one article, I called them Blair's children. And my partner said, do you think you could stop saying that? Because it's sort of giving, <laughs> <laughs> it's giving the wrong impression. Poli Blair's political children. Right. That was your uh, concession. <laughs> well, I wouldn't want anyone to think that either. Right, okay. um, so, um, you know, there's so many things. I mean, look, the good things about New Labour, and it is important to say that, investment, I think the lovely... Some of the 
beautiful buildings, even though they were done through PFI, which yeah. is lead and My an enormous. School. Yeah, you're have a yeah. stock. Yeah. yeah. What improved? Horrible Victorian prison, yeah. you know, modern building. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, and you know, there's in our my local borough, Brent. I often walk past actually at night because they spend a lot of taxpayers' money keeping it lit at night. But Norman Foster designed an academy in Brent. It's an absolutely stunning building. I think there's mixed feelings about what it's like to work work inside it. So all of that was great, a tremendous sense of hope. I mean, you know, you were yeah. you were around in yeah. that period. Shorthand, I don't think Blair really believed in comprehensive education. I think he thought it was a lowering of standards. And he did say that getting rid of grammar schools was an act close to academic vandalism. He thought comprehensives were identified with lack of discipline and all those things. So in a funny way, I now see more connection between Blair and Gove via Andrew Adonis, who's a fascinating figure, than I do to the period that we're now in. So that's the new Labour era. Gordon Brown was a little bit better, and I think remember coming to see you when you were advising Gordon Brown and trying to persuade you to do something. I can't remember what it was, but it, we didn't succeed. But anyway, you were very nice and gave me a cup of tea. <laughs> and, um, God, that's pretty damning, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, um, and then uh, I think Gove, so this is going to sound odd. I'll tell you what I think the Gove era did. I think it was uh, Sam Friedman, who was Gove's advisor said Michael Gove normalised comprehensive education for the Conservative Party and actually it's a very different idea of what a good non-selective education is but it was so different from Thatcher, the belief that grammar schools were the only way. So I think the academy and free school movement under Gove is going to be seen, if we can keep it in, going in the right direction, as a very important moment in making non-selective education Wow, a national a, project. I mean, that is an amazingly uh, unusual view, isn't it? Well, it, it's my own considered yeah. view that I've come to. I mean, I think it's important to say that what Michael Gove thinks a good education is, going back to what is education yeah, yeah, for, yeah. you know, his view was that, you know, that you should let all disadvantaged children enter the world of knowledge that ends with understanding the House of Lords opera um, and, you know, sort of high culture. And that's not yeah. my view. Having said that, we have to say it was a Tory government in effect and they didn't stop grammar expansion, they've always supported private education, they ploughed lots of taxpayers' money into academy and free schools. So they talk the talk, is that the right phrase? So you're oddly, I mean, it's quite odd, you're quite negative about the Blair years and know, quite surprisingly not... positive about the Gove years. No, I'm just looking for an interesting yeah. angle. Well, it is an interesting thing. angle. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, I'll get on to Michael Gove afterwards. No, uh, um, so It's very easy. The thing about Gove is he made education exciting in a way that Blair had done with education, education. Gove, he, you know, he's, he's, he's a talented minister and he's a talented political figure and he's a very rare political figure. He's also completely and utterly bonkers, as David Cameron has now told us. Thanks for that, because he appointed him to. Yeah. Um, I think he did screw up the education system, but he made it very... His speeches were always a joy to read because they were very... Well argued, but I just disagreed with everything he did. It is important to say a lot of what he did. Okay, yeah, that's the past. Yeah, but you've written the book really saying where we've got to in the present, but really talking about the future, which is why I think the book is yeah. important. Talk to us about the vision for the future, then. Well, do you know, I, I mean, in particular, the National Education Service, because yeah. that's where you start your book, and okay. then we can talk about what that means. Okay, so I think to be absolutely honest, I wanted to help Jeremy Corbyn's project but I wanted to do it in an independent way. 
And, you know, we were talking downstairs, this is a rather difficult period for both political parties, particularly for the Labour Party, and we were saying, policies, not polarisation. That's your so, phrase. Yeah, that's my phrase. So, um, as somebody, uh, Lindsay, said I should get a T-shirt saying it. I won't possibly do that. But I'm interested. I think we all need to think about what... Well, you had a good phrase. What do we share in common rather than what yeah. divides us? Yeah. So, the first two-thirds of this book, I think most of the Labour Party could agree with. I'm not... Maybe that's a bit optimistic on, on my part. But So Jeremy Corbyn talked about a national education service, which has been a bit undeveloped as an idea. So I also thought, well, let's try and develop it. So that's what I do in the book. So I have a brief view of the three most important parts of the history, which is the grammar, secondary, modern divide, selection, progressive versus traditional education, and marketization, which I think is the biggest problem actually and then I look at four areas did you ask me to do this anyway it's good, it's good. Yeah. No, no, can, the first thing is can we really afford free education and the thing is Jeremy Corbyn well really Andrew Fisher who wrote the manifesto changed the political weather with saying we'll get rid of tuition fees and you know now we find Andrew Adonis who introduced them says mm. they're a bad thing so that really interesting so a, a it interests if me if only the guy before Corbyn had done that who is that, Gordon Brown? No, that was me, actually. Oh, yeah. Uh, 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 anyway, I just thought I'd say it, so you didn't. Uh, uh, yes, yeah, so sorry, that's, sorry. That's, that's, Look, too good. I, I reckon, I, I, you know, we won't get it's a different. No, it's no, a different no, 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 I wasn't an invitation. It was just a sort of. It was just a glib remark. Actually, it may be that you couldn't have done it. It may anyway, be. Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, because look, you know as well as I do that political moments follow economic sure. moments and all the rest of it. Yeah. So that was very interesting. My own view is that the way that Labour want to fund free education is not quite feasible. Whisper that. And I think we ought to have some version of a graduate tax. I think it's completely wrong that young people come out with this debt, notional or otherwise, and a debt that, ev that some encourages some to earn less because then they don't hit the threshold, which was 21,000, now 25,000. But I also look at other aspects of a free education. You might know, I don't know how old your children are, they may be a bit too old, but the cost of child care stroke education is now becoming insupportable, despite the, a subsidised free hours for three to four-year-olds and disadvantaged two-year-olds. Um, even secondary education, parents are now being asked to contribute towards supplies and all the rest of it. And uh, I think Sir Andrew Carter, who's one of the many shadowy figures in education, said, well, you don't need to pay for it through your taxes, so if you just contribute £100 a term to your school, that's a good thing. Well, I He do... also said you don't get free gro people don't get free groceries when they go to the... I know. My jaw dropped when I, I read that. I know, that was an extraordinary anyway. thing. So, so free, so, so free. I think, but I think free, but also then the th other thing I look at is the interesting thing about national education services is it takes off this obsession of Govanadonis with the secondary years and particularly with the route of secondary through to universities, and particularly the selective universities. And I am very critical of this idea that a successful education leads to a top university. I think it's such a narrow view. You know, you even have nurseries where young three- and four-year-olds have mock graduation ceremonies, which is supposed to set them on the social mobility path. And I'm very, very critical of social mobility as the complete way of looking at what an education mm. should be. So I'm very interested in uh, adult education and further education, which Alison Wolfe, crossbench peer, nothing to do with Labour, said is in tatters. 
So that's two things I yeah. say. I have, a, I do say a lot of other things. Go on, but say shall the other, I pause? Yeah. Well, very quickly, I think we've let teaching be become deprofessionalized, and we do everything the wrong way round. We train teachers for fewer. We, we, you know, teach first, which may have some merits. It's six weeks in the summer, and then you go into the classroom, and then you have no autonomy. I think we'd do better to look at somewhere like Finland, where you become highly selective, you're highly well-educated, and then you have this extraordinary autonomy. Select and the teachers, not the children, basically. Well, select the teachers, but also educate the teachers, give them continuous education and give them freedom, not the other way around. That's another thing yeah. that I talk about. And then the, the absolute minefield of democratic accountability of education, which you'll know as being former leader of the Labour Party. It's a difficult one. The, the sort of history of this, I, I know National Education Service was sort of a slogan, but, but and you're in a way trying to fill it, fill it out. I don't mean that in a sort of rude way, but you know, it was, yeah. a, sort of, it was a framework and you're trying to fill out this. I think actually Jeremy Corbyn nicked it from one of my other books, actually. Oh, really? Somebody told me that, yeah. Because I wrote School Wars in 2011, and at the end I said, why can't we have a universal publicly funded system a bit like the NHS? Yeah. What about an NES? And then... Jeremy Corbyn, I don't mind him doing that, suddenly said, let's have an NES. So I should get that sort of um, should. patented, shouldn't but, I? But the, and we've never had that, unlike the NHS, because of the history of education, correct? Well, I, think we, I, I think we were on our way to having it in the 60s, and I'm not all for yeah. looking back and saying it was yeah. great then, because I think we've learnt an enormous amount. But I think we're now coming out of that 30-year neoliberal tunnel, and I think there's more of an appetite for various reasons, for good universal provision and also moving towards a common system. We've got the most segregated system in the world, probably not, but maybe. Yeah. And I don't understand why we can't have a common system where all children go to school together. And I, that's my real passion. And partly I say that because I think about the road that I live on. I live on quite a long road, a mile long in Kilburn, in Brent. Well, Kilburn's at one end and Queen's Park, which is a different sort of area, is at the other. Up on the right-hand the right side, come out my front door. It's quite, it's quite interesting that I end up living right in the middle of this sociological um, phenomenon. It's public housing, social housing. Almost everybody who's going to school when you go out my front door on the right are going to state schools are not particularly well-regarded ones. You go left, and my block are all committed to local schools. We all get on very well. Then you go left, and actually, as the houses get bigger and richer, everybody's in voters or version of, and they're going on tubes and going to South Hampstead and right. Westminster and so on. So I always think, there's really, I know every, pretty much everybody. What, there's no reason why can't we all, why can't everybody be going to the same school? Well, sh should we then talk about selection? Yeah. So the two sets of issues here are, gram particular issues are grammar schools yeah. and private schools. Yeah, private schools, there's issues about money and selection. Sorry, sorry, so yeah. That's, yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, but do you want to say something about both of those? The, the that's in a way the hardest, we've started at the hardest end, really, of reform, haven't we? Well, I know, I think it's by far the easiest, if I you do. want my view, yeah. But that may be because I've spent four years as the chair of the campaign looking at selection. So you have to go back and say... Grammar's uh, post-war, the setting up of universal secondary education, which was a tremendous advance, but it was predicated on this terrible divide, that you took the 11 plus and the smart children, which tended to be largely the middle class children, went to well-supported, well-resourced. Actually, some of them weren't that good. 
grammar schools, and then really the working class was sent to secondary moderns. And it's a travesty when you look back. But there is in this country, an, a, there is a, a particular narrative that attaches to some of our high achievers, Margaret Forster, Andrew Neil. Oh, um, uh, there are some better ones. Alan Bennett is an example. People whose lives were not tending to be working class people, but lower middle class people whose lives were transformed by grammars. And my, my view in the end of the Gove Comprehensive Project was it was trying to get the grammar school narrative into a non-selective environment. That's my other observation, which you, you may want to come back to. But the 11 plus, so Labour basically phased it out in most of the country. But shorthand, a lot of other forms of covert selection have come in. Faith schools, aptitude, all sorts of other ways. But we still have 164 grammars. Parliament has forbidden any more grammars to be built, but they have expanded. Yeah. Um, they've just they've put on extra classes and so on. And then Theresa May comes along, and Theresa May misreads her own party and says, grammar schools are marvellous, that narrative of social mobility worked, let's bring back grammars. What she hadn't noticed was what Gove did to the Tory party, which was made them believe in non... And, and so actually... When Theresa May introduced the idea of returning grammars, I spent six months speaking on platforms with academy and free school leaders and people I sort of might have argued with in other ways, saying, don't bring back the How do you deal with the existing ones? Uh, well, no, I think you... Fa well, first of all, you don't expand. Yeah. And I think that I'd like to see a Labour government commit to phasing out the 11-plus as a life-defining exam in this country over a five-year period. It's been done in one local authority area recently. It was done in, it's been done in Guernsey, which, Guernsey, is, that's a, right, which yeah. is a small crown yeah. dependency. But they've had a 30-year fight that's a sort of mini-me version of what's going on. And what got Guernsey to do it as a matter of interest? Just campaigners. Right. Campaigners saying that this divides the island between the better off and yeah. the poor, and we know comprehensive education can work. So the thing is, the Labour Party is very resistant to phasing out selection, even under Jeremy Corbyn. That is the truth. Right. What about private schools? I'm going to come on at the end to how does change happen, but what private schools, because you talk about private schools. Yeah. The example of Finland that did phase out their private schools. Yeah. Finland did a very remarkable thing, which was they looked at their system post-war, 60s and 70s. They said, we've got this incredibly segregated system with well-regarded private schools, selective schools, and less well-regarded common schools, local schools, which you could say is what we still have in a way. And they got rid of it all, and they brought in a common system. Now, I know for Finland is a very different. It's smaller. It's, all countries are different. But They've got the Moomins. <laughs> but they did, they did do that. And, you know, so I, I, I would like to see, I appreciate that it would take, if we could ever get a movement towards it, it would take some time to phase out private schools. I'm not for legally abolishing them because I think you'd end up having endless court cases yeah. about the right to buy your child a piano lesson, the right to send your child to Eton. I would rather do it by public opinion. And I was thinking of two things. Who would have thought that gay marriage would ever be made legal? Who would have thought you, you would ban smoking in public places? Things that seem impossible, if you keep arguing for them, and this is the lesson I learned from my father, totally right. you, can, you might change things. First of all, he had a formulation, didn't he? Oh, he had many. F yeah. First of all, they say you're mad, yeah. you're mad, then they... 
thing. That's all they ignore you, then they say you're mad, then they something else. I can't else, remember the order. And then they all agree with you then or they something. They all say they said it in yeah, the first yeah. place. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. But, you've, but you've got some steps along the way. So Michael Gove has surprisingly said VAT should be levied on private yes, school fees. Yes, I know. Fees. Well, that's, so that's an, yeah. Business rate relief. But, but the, you know, in a way, that looks more in the ballpark. You've also got a proposal that... 25% of private school people should be those on free school meals and ch looked after children, is that right? Well, the Sutton Trust, which is an interesting organisation, yeah. it's very committed to social mobility. I don't agree with everything it does. It said you should have 25% of places on a selective basis, a bit like the assisted places scheme. I think that's wrong. I think you should, if you're going to do that, let the private schools with state subsidy take the children who need a good education at most. I was thinking about this. Presumably, you not... I mean, if you were going to do this, you couldn't pay them the private school fee. You'd have to say you're going to have to subsist no, on I think what they'd get in the state system. I think the Sutton Trust plan is that you pay what they'd have in the state system, which is a tiny yeah, amount, yeah, four to 6,000. Yeah. Plus there Compared would be, to what, 15 or something? Well, 15, and then in some yeah. schools, a 35,000, yeah. 40,000 a year with boarding. Right. Um, I mean, it is a huge gap. I mean, yeah. Gordon Brown said, yeah, do you he remember? did, which was my it was actually my part of my thing that we should try and equalise the well, amount. Well, you know, Ed, that was a very good idea. Yeah. That was a really, really good idea. And um, I because was, I I've, thought it was the way you actually change the dynamic. If yeah. you if you're going to get the same amount spent on you in a state school compared to a private school, yeah. you might be in business anyway. But I think also the private schools recognise the injustice and the apartheid that they're part of. They really, I mean, they. Do, but of course they like the Sutton Trust selective proposal because it means they would get the clever poorer children. That would give them a moral halo, which I think would be unjustified. And I think that would be a disaster for state education. So that's one idea that I th I'm adapting their idea. And then I think you've got to do something about university entry. Well, I was about to say, I mean, do you think that there's also a sense in which you could change the dynamic by people thinking my child is going to be you know, might not really not get into university if I, they go to a private school or they get, their chance will be much diminished. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be punitive because I think you never get anywhere being punitive. But I, I do, But at the moment, it's the, you know, wild opposite of punitive. Yeah. I mean, no. you know, Oxbridge, for, you know, whatever it is, 40% from private schools, 16% yeah. from state schools when only 6% or 7% of the population I, go to private schools. I mean, schools. I think it's, it's, it's a sort of mirrors our segregated system. In the end, Oxford and Cambridge are so deified and then, you know, there's this, I, I just find it so sort of odd. So I, th I think there's something to be said for contextual admissions yeah, yeah, in those yeah. top universities. And my reading of some parents is that for some parents, not all, private education, it is their better guarantee of a place at a top university. I think it'd be good for all universities if more talented people and interested and educated people would spread about them. So that's another idea. So... There's grammars and private, which you said was the easy, in, in a sense the easier well, part. Well, if you're bold, it's If easier. you're bold, it's the easier part. What, what about, and you sort of touched on this, but I, in a way I think it's the worst part of what Gove did, or one of the worst parts, which is the narrowing of the curriculum, i.e. sort of, you know, what we teach, yeah. you know, the stifling of creative subjects, then the Labour government's big mistake, which I think was not to implement the Tomlinson report, which yeah. would have got rid of GCSEs and had a baccalaureate system. Yeah. What about sort of what we teach and how we teach it? Well, actually, I wanted to ask you a question because you've got children in primary school, yeah. haven't you? Do you yeah. feel that their curriculum is narrow? Do you feel that they're subject to that kind of change? 
Uh, well, not at this stage, but I sort of fear about the EBAC and its impact on the secondary system. Yeah. I mean, it's a secondary system where I think it has been particularly narrowed. I think it has been narrowed. I think there's too much testing, which I think you're, yeah. you know, they want to do baseline testing now for three and four year olds. The year two SATs, year seven SATs. I mean, the whole system is based on test, 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 standardized tests, and then these rather narrow exams. And I think parents are beginning to rebel against that. And parents are always quite a powerful we are the most Our kids are the most over-tested yeah. in the world, yeah. And also there's now immense stress around GCSEs and A-levels. This is a new thing. You know, you read reports about children commit, trying to commit suicide because but it they're isn't, so stressed. But also it's so illogical because the, the GCSEs at 16 were based on the idea that you could leave education at 16, yeah, but the Labour government changed that and you can't leave education completely until 18. Until 18. Yeah. So why are we testing people at 16? I know. Well, well, you know, we get attached to these... Uh, what was it? Gold standards. I mean, that was why Tony Blair wouldn't get rid of, he, he wouldn't implement the Tomlinson report because it was about phase, phasing out A-levels, wasn't it? And he, he couldn't... Well, and, GC, and, and, GCSE. and GCSEs, yeah. But, but I would much rather see a broader baccalaureate system where you learnt a spread of subjects you, that you, you not only do not select, but you don't stream and segregate up until about 15, which is what really good international systems do. I recommend, I shouldn't recommend another book when I'm supposed to be recommending my own, but I would recommend Lucy Crean's book, Cleverlands, which is about the top five performing systems, you know, that are most equitable and high attaining. And the things they do in common are to have mixed ability teaching until 15, but have much broader curriculum, much less prescription from the yeah. Centre and a mix of and a mix of academic and vocational learning, so that you don't start specialising until later in your teens. Because I think this idea that you start deciding what you're going to do at 12 or 13, which is the premise of the studio schools, is too young. I'm going to come to the audience shortly, yeah. but um, just talk to us about the. I mean, I think structures are a rather sort of boring subject, yeah. but on the other hand, the structures are such a mess: free schools, yeah. trust schools you know, maintained schools, yeah. goodness knows what schools, yeah. faith schools. What, what do we do about this structural mess? That's a really good short question with a really long, complicated answer. In the end, what I have done in the book is just take three principles that I think are really important. You're right, we have so many different kinds yeah. of schools. And I always think it's if you were to try and understand the school system, it's like an archaeological dig. Yeah. You need to cut through, and at each period, a different kind, voluntary yeah. control, voluntary aided, academies, free schools, studio schools, university technical college. I mean, I've been watching education learning, I read voraciously, I'm still coming to grips with it all, so it's crazy. But I think you should harmonise freedoms and responsibilities. Yeah. So I think you need reform of admissions, and if a freedom's worth having, all schools should have it. I think you should bring back an element of democratic legitimacy to the system. You know, when I read about Tory party peers and their cronies running schools and yeah. it's not that you can't it's they're not for profit so the left who go no privatization they're not for profit but things like related party transactions you know you get your your son's firm to run yeah. to do the photocopying contract everybody recognizes that that has to stop 
It's a curious combination, is it, of, you say in this in the book, marketization plus state control. Yeah, yeah. command so, and control and marketization. Because it's trying to run all of these schools from the Department of Education, which is yeah. sort of a nonsense, yeah. maybe with a few regional schools commissioners, and marketization. Yeah. Well, it started out autonomy, says Michael Gove. So all schools are made autonomous. That doesn't work because schools can't survive on their own. Then you get multi-academy trust. That can't quite work because the Department yeah. of Education can't deal with it. So then you get regional school commissioners who are shadowy, undemocratic So you want figures. democratic accountability, basically. I want democratic, but I don't want, let's go back to local authority control. I want us to rethink from first principles now because I think that's School good boards, politics. elected school boards. Yeah, well, you know, in Canada, they have elected school boards. Teachers and ex-teachers and heads who've retired become part of the system helping it to improve. There's lots of exciting ideas now, we could go with. Fine. That's what we ought to be Now doing. let me ask you this, which is a sort of more difficult <coughs> question, and this is not meant to defend Michael Gove, uh, but uh, you, you, two of the schools, well one of the schools that you praise in the book, uh, is it called School 21? Well I praise its oracy programme, yeah. it's a free school. It's a free school. Yeah. I have a, um, there's a school in Doncaster, I know you don't like MPs talking about their constituencies, but <laughs> uh, um, called the XP School, yeah. run by a former maintained school head, yeah. which from, it's project based learning. I mean, yeah. uh, you, I, when I think about education locally, which I know I'm not supposed to do, because uh, um, you'd slightly disapprove, but I remember this, the bell going in this school in, called Campsmount School in my constituency and him turning to me and saying it's basically industrial age schooling for the information age and he has put this into practice by having project-based learning. Yeah. Okay. How do you, so to my, this okay. long-winded question, let me just ask the question, how do you have innovation yeah. without marketization? Because I think you have innovation as part of a reflective state and I think if you look at somewhere like Canada where they have school boards Charter schools started to be, the equivalent of academies and free schools started being set up there. Yeah. And what they did was call all the parents in and say, look, these rival schools are being set yeah, up. Yeah, bad. Well, they're being set up. What would you like from your schools? Let's, let's go back and discuss right. what would you like. I'm all for innovation. I mean, I, I would like to see school parents being able to start up schools, but as part of a, plan, a planning process. Um, but can I just say, yeah. I don't dislike MPs talking about their constituency because right. it brings rich knowledge. It's about what you call the lack of meta thinking. Right. I think that MPs have lost the courage to do what Michael Gove did for right or wrong and think about the system as a whole. So I'm bored of going to MPs and all they tell me about is about X, Y in their constituency, okay? Okay, okay. I, get, I get the message. One more question before we go to the audience, which is, the. I, I think this book is packed full of great ideas and you've even got a sort of there's a but i can hear the but can't you hear it no no, no, no. it's not a but it's a, a well called sort of uh, it's even got a sort of queen speech at the end yeah you you've observed education for yeah. you know long time you've you know thought about it a lot how does change happen how does how does this you know get transformed into because i think the education system will be so much better if yeah. people did what you were suggesting how do you think that happened? Well, I, again, I've thought about this a lot, and I may be also drawn on sort of on informal political education of my whole life and childhood. I think probably change doesn't begin with Parliament. It begins with coalitions on the outside. If you look at what got rid of grammar, secondary, modern divide and brought in the first comprehensive reform, it was researchers showing up the weakness of the 11 plus, it was parents saying, how dare my child be failed at 11? And it was a, mm -hmm. an alchemy of coalition. And this is building up now. There are lots of people saying, our children are being too tested. We're losing arts, drama and music in our schools. 
selection is not so all about. The coalition also, so is coalition building. is really important. I think it's also uh, political parties thinking things through, being a bit bold. Obviously, that's important. Yeah. Changing public opinion. I'll tell you what I really do feel. I think, I hate the word our media, because media just immediately is. But I think there's a lot of problems with the way that education is written about and reported. And I, again, don't want to sound like a paranoid conspiracy theorist, but I, I, I'm willing to take the risk. Most people who run our newspapers, our magazines, and our papers, it's, it's, it's not a personal fault. They either have been privately educated, fine, or using private education for their children, or selected schools. They, in some ways, they have no idea about the 93%. And they have a kind of, and I think a lot of the Gove revolution was powered by people saying, I went to a private mm. school, it's brilliant, mm. let's make a school like it. And I think it's a different debate within the state se sector. That's great. Uh, we've kept to our time. I'm going to take questions. We'll see how we get on. What, do you want to say your name? Uh, Zoe. I was really struck by your discussion of your experience um, and how you characterized your parents' choice as a courageous one. Yeah. And um, this it sort of relates to something that I was reading about happening in New York right now, where parents are pushing back against a desegregation strategy that's been proposed by the new chancellor. There's a gap between what people believe about educational yeah. inequality and what they're willing to do if their own children are affected. So how do you convince or talk to people about evening opportunities for everyone if they feel that somehow they are losing something? Well. You know, Let, can I just yeah, say one sorry. more? Just, yeah. I'm, no, I'm conscious that maybe lots of people yeah. who want yeah. to ask questions, and I don't. I want to get everybody in. Yeah. Well, then we'll come I'd to that. I'd love to take questions in threes. I've noticed that. It's uh, generally a politician's habit for avoiding answering the question, but on this occasion it isn't, so we get people in. My, my name is Peter Wood, uh, and I'm chair of governors of a maintained nursery in Deptford in southeast London. I get a bit irritated when people spend a lot of time talking about US university tuition fees and nobody discusses the collapse and disintegration of the maintained uh, early years structure. Yeah. It's all vanishing and nobody goes on about that. Yeah. I mean, I'm old enough not to care about university tuition fees anymore. I do care about this. Okay. Yeah. So. Zoe on sort of what's the answer for parents, what's the answer to, to Dick Crossman in a way and to you know, the parents well, in New York and Peter on the yeah. nursery sector? So again, Zoe, it's a really short and to the point question where I think it's a very, very long answer. I think you all, so I learned that part of the reason I got into campaigning and writing was because I found those kind of discussions with other parents, well, they just didn't suit my temperament because I know there's nothing more important to a parent than their child. I also came to realize that every parent's view about education in this country is a really complex mix of where they went to school, what they want for their child, their perception of their child. You know, the number of times you would hear, X is too clever to go to the local school, X is too sensitive to go to the local school. And, you know, they may have had a point, they were clever and sensitive and so on. So I decided I'd, instead of being angry with every parent I ever met who wasn't going to the local school, and believe you me, they didn't, and they crossed the road and they saw me, and I'm quite, <laughs> I like, you know, I quite like to be liked, so that was difficult. Yeah. I thought I'll write about it instead. But the, my answer to that is there's always going to be two reasons, fundamental reasons, why people avoid local schools. One will be a, a, short, a sort of elitism that they believe in the shaping and, and just the superior thing. And the other will be fear and worry about lack of safety. And I always think that is something that you can address. 
And there's a very good organisation called Meet the Parents, where it, it says to parents at primary school, you've probably heard lots of school game yeah. stuff about this local school, come and meet the parents, and they will tell you about what it's really like. Because I know that before I went to Holland Park, everyone said, oh my God, it's going to be really dangerous. And you know, things do happen in schools, but God, they don't half happen in other kinds of schools as well, if you look at the work on bullying and emotional deprivation in boarding schools or whatever. So it's, it's about recognising... Look how David Cameron turned out. Yeah, but you know, I, you know, I know this is a this is a mischievous point, but I really, I really think that the leaders of the coalition are not a good advertisement for a very expensive elite education. And I think Boris Johnson is just turning it yeah. into a farcical, wonderful final act. Yeah. So, um, I so, think, yeah, I completely agree with you, and I made the mistake of not. Yes. Yeah. Because, and, and actually, part of the National Education Service begins profoundly with early years education of a particular kind and you would want and I, I to be fair to Labour they they've done it they say more about it than I have tonight they are committed to a graduate-led well-paid childcare force I'm not so sure what their take is on the kind of education and care but my guess is it would be more towards the better experience of the international countries you know again Finland and so on Japan you don't start till six or seven and it's play-based learning, which then means that when you come to the academic work, you're actually paradoxically better placed to learn than what's happening here is forcing academic learning on children too young, which I think is a real, real mistake. So okay. I'm afraid all I can do is wholeheartedly agree with okay. you. Okay, let's take some more. I want to get lots of people in. So I grew up in Stockport and went to a grammar school in Trafford. And now, now work with local authorities. And I so agree with you about like changing the mood challenging the 11 plus but looking at Trafford and it still has so many selective gender and grammar schools I don't know how the mood will be changing there anytime soon and I know we don't want to like talk about specific areas yeah. and it's great what's happening in Guernsey but I don't know how we get central governments to interact with that without trampling on the local area and what they all seem to believe. What do you do with the local authorities? Did you well say? I work at the LGA now um, the local government association. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the, education policy or? Uh, on loads of different bits. Loads of different um, things. Yeah. Right. So, okay, so how yeah. do we make this? Uh, yeah. uh, do you mind taking a three? No, 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 no. Yeah. No. Hi, I'm Chris. For context, I went to a comprehensive in Cambridge. Presuming that even in the ideals system, children, some children won't engage with school, especially in their youngest years, what would a national education service provide for those who later on in life regret not having engaged at school? I was a sort of post-war bulge baby and went through the 11 plus and grammar school education <laughs> and uh, spent all my working life in a London comprehensive. Elliot School is oh, quite... Partly. Yes, yeah. Wandsworth now. Yeah. yeah, but Academy now, it doesn't exist anymore. When I started, which was 1975, 1976, something like that, it was a truly wonderful school, and I worked for ILIA. And in a London Education Authority. In a London yeah. Education Authority. And that was fabulous. It was exciting, it was wonderful, and the education we provided was 100 times better than my grammar school. I'm very committed, actually, to local education authority. I don't really like the idea of individual head teachers running things. I want it to be national, I want it to be public, yeah. not individualistic. Okay. 
Okay. What was your name, sorry? Uh, Diane Bardman. Yeah. Okay, so you've got yep. Phoebe on grammar schools, um, Chris on lifelong learning, and Diane on uh, okay. the individual head teachers. So I would say to Phoebe, hello. Uh, Trafford is an interesting area. It's where Graham Brady is the MP and he's the most passionate advocate of grammar schools and a very charming and engaging debater, even when he loses, and I've beaten him a few times. Um, but uh, I, I think you, 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 yeah, in certain areas, Kent and Buckinghamshire and parts of Lincolnshire and Trafford, selection is in the DNA of the area. And for parents, it's like not to go to a grammar school is to be a failure, which means, of course, that 80% of children are being told that they are a failure by not getting in. On the other hand, because I know, because I've coordinated these campaigns over the last four years as the chair, there are a lot of people who are really against, including in Trafford, Stephen Longdon, just elected as a local councillor. I think you're right that it's entrenched in an area, but nothing is forever. And a combination of campaigners, the evidence, the evidence is so clear on the 11 plus. <coughs> Grammar schools largely educate the already advantaged and they do not educate the genuinely disadvantaged. And there are groups in between. So the so combination of campaigning, the evidence, and then a lead from political parties. And that's where I think Labour has really, really not done well, if oh, I may say so. You may. Okay. Okay. Chris? Chris's point. Well, I would say two things to your point. One, in the book I argue for a entitlement for, for adult education because I think the idea that everybody finds their way by the age of 18 is ridiculous. I know loads of people who only find their way at 19 or 20 or when Ed and I did an event the other day, do you remember Holly's grandmother, she was speaking with her, her she got her history degree when she was 80 and uh, I just thought that was amazing. Yeah, do you remember totally. that? So I think there ought to be a three-year entitlement of free education for people who've missed out the first time. But I think the question of people failing within the system now, I, what I'd like to see is resources channeled to support those who find learning difficult, whatever it is, whatever that might be. And some people might be brilliant at maths and physics and not good at other things. And in Canada, they have that high expectations, but with resources to provide support all the way through. So that instead of saying, don't worry, you're not that good at maths, some people aren't, they say, okay, you're finding this particularly difficult. We're going to take you out and we're going to really work on what you've... And I, to me, that seems to make complete sense. It does mean more resources. And the third thing I would say to you is that the Inner London Education Authority did some amazing things. I think local collaborative organisations doing all the kind of work that they did, of which local authorities and then the Inner London Education Authority was a bigger example, were brilliant. And one of the things that makes me sad is that the part of the narrative of our system is to forget that and to bury that history. And I w I'm all for reinterring, if that's the right word, the history of successful initiatives before and seeing what we can learn about them for now. Can, that, can I ask a sort of slightly more yes. challenging question? <laughs> yes, on that's the, all you're ever asking. On, on this question, which is, I was thinking as you were talking about New Labour, and I don't want to defend everything New Labour yeah. did, far from it. But... It came into office in a context, and some of the context was that there were schools, particularly in inner London, because that was sort of known about, where people were getting rubbish marks and going out with very few qualifications. Yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of people still are, I mean, even after the reform of and the you don't Do you know a third, of ch a third of children failed the whole set of the new 
GCSEs, got, got level one to three. Now, I don't necessarily see it as failure. I, there's a wonderful video doing the rounds of Twitter of a, a young, very articulate woman saying, I only got level one to three in my GCSEs. I've got so much to offer. Don't label me a failure. But the other thing that you have to make as part of the argument is the relationship between poverty and educational achievement, which is why the early years is so important. And you know that this is, I should have said this before, the real trouble with the Gove narrative, so we don't end on a kind of good forget Michael Gove note. Yeah. The real problem was it was it completely ignored the wider picture and it said teachers can make a difference in the classroom and that it's a, a sort of learned powerlessness to say that poverty means you can't yeah. achieve. It's quite hard to say poverty is a very important reason why people don't achieve, but it's important too. And also, that if you're going to have a it, national it, education... Yeah. Yeah. It is important too, but some schools do better than others in yeah, poor some, areas. Yeah, no, they do. And King Solomon Academy down the road for me gets 99% of GCSEs, HC. But in a way, some schools do that by teaching to the test. So they may not necessarily... Yeah produce of you know I don't know I think we have to try and okay. learn from those that do better okay. of course there are better teachers yeah. and heads and better organized schools okay hello yeah. I'm Rachel um, this is a really specific question which I hope has a bigger point um, uh, it's just building on the building the early years question I have a three-year-old um, and I've read a lot about education and I'm quite strongly bought into the idea that teaching her at the age of four in a year's time is a very bad idea yeah um, do I go with my morals and put her in the local primary school because I want to support the local primary school? Or do I go with my child and put her in the Steiner school, which is really small and won't teach her anything until she's seven? A which school? Steiner, a, a, a Steiner, Steiner school. school. Nearby also, so also in the community. But I would be paying for that and I would not be putting her in the community school, which I should do according to my... Oh, I hate these questions. Yeah, okay, so right. You've got, got some. The good thing about taking them in threes is you've got time you know to think what? of the answer. Oh no, no, I don't. I have got the answer. Well, no, I just okay, hate okay, the okay. Let me yeah. take. But I, you, you're not allowed to answer yet, right? Um, I'm Jess. I'm a primary school teacher in South London. Um, I just moved schools, but the school I moved from um, was wonderful. It was very creative. It was a very mixed school, but my main issue with it was that we had lots of middle-class parents who were wonderful and they got involved, but often the parents set felt quite segregated and they had the time and the resources to get involved with the school, whereas our other parents maybe didn't know or have the confidence to ask teachers questions when they needed to to have more of a say in what the school was doing. So I wanted to ask, how do we empower all parents to get involved with their local school, not just those with the knowledge and understanding? Great questions. Yeah. Those are really great questions. Lady next to you, yeah. Hi, my name's Bee. I went to private school and actually don't think they should exist. And Which I'm one, wondering Bea? Putney High, right. next to Elliot, actually. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm wondering at what point we will stop talking about reform and access to private school because I find it quite patronizing when we think about yeah. children from other schools joining private school and that necessarily being good for them um, and will Labour be bold enough to talk about abolition rather than reform? B, do you, are you in favour of abolition because of your own private school experience and just, or for sort of societal reasons? I remember 12 year old girls and I could still name them talking about only dating Herovians and Etonians and I just think that's really destructive and I remember walking down Putney High Street uh, in a private school uniform and people would throw stones and you know I just think yes actually people from Elliot and from other schools in the area and I just I don't think that's good for our communities. So it's so Steiner school, parent engagement, 
B's well, plan to Okay, this is not to dodge school. your question, but I think that the problem with your local primary school is it's being dictated to by government about early academic achievement, and that's your dilemma. So the answer is a political one, which is to get primary schools to have more of that Steinerish creative element in them, which does not solve your dilemma. I don't think every dilemma can be solved, but, you know... Um, give me your email and tell me what you end up doing. But, but, I, but, I, but, the, but actually, the other thing I would say is there are so many advantages and, and genuine riches in being part of a community from early on that you could, this is me being pragmatic, kind of agony, Aunt Melissa, you could do a lot of that Steinerish stuff yourself, extra work, but you could then be part of a community that... Um, Your daughters are in the audience, and if they want to give another answer, they can. No, I think that would be deeply unfair. Right, right okay, okay, fine. <laughs> okay, uh, keep, keep going then. I, um, so, now, what was the second question? Uh, there was about um, parents, Jess's question about, oh, yeah. you well, know, middle-class parents being yeah. more engaged and so well, on. Well, I, I think my answer to that is that the school should make it its business to be encouraging in and hearing from all parents. And I know exactly the scenario you're talking about, because to go on from that point local community school, it tended to be the middle class articulate parents who sometimes have a motive of being involved in the classroom and the school in order to oversee what's going on. There's a lot of anxiety and ambition and sometimes just sheer pushiness. And, uh, you know, been there, done that, seen all that. And, uh, but I think it's the school's job and the ethos of the school should be to be drawing in all parents. But of course, that's very, very difficult when you're as hard pressed. And then B's question. Well, you know, in a funny way, if there was somebody, if a bit like the tuition fees thing, if somebody stood up and said, let's not do all this complicated Sutton Trust, Melissa Benn stuff, let's just abolish private schools and have a common system. You know, if I was 80 and on my Zimmer frame, I'd probably say, I'm for that. You know, uh, I mean, it would be the simplest thing, but I just wonder what the backlash would be like. Large. Well, what do you think, Ed? Ed, you, Ed you've been the leader of the Labour Party. Well, I think it's legally impossible. That's what I wonder. I, I don't know whether there's... I mean, I'm sure there are lawyers in the audience who can tell us if it's legally impossible, but I won't point at them and ask them. I just wanted What's to ask... What's your name, sorry? My name's Beverly. I'm an academic at UCL. I went to a comprehensive school, and I find it very strange when people are talking about all the choices they're dilemmaed with, because the people I come from and the people my parents were just didn't have choices. Yeah. And I wonder how you address that. You know, when the idea is it's the local school, you go there because you live there. Um, and I mean, this is also connected to things like jobs. Um, yeah. Scunthorpe, where I come from, is not very far from Doncaster. You went to a comprehensive, so you could be a steel worker. If you were yeah. a girl, you worked in the office. If you were a bloke, you worked in the, you know, the steel mills. So I, I, I'm amazed. I'm, I'm always learning from London. I've lived here for 24 years, but I'm amazed that it's a very kind of middle class yeah. idea of choice that's going on often, which um, I find, you know, what is the statistics on the people who don't have choice? And even the time to be able to participate in schools. Yeah. That's, you know, it requires you having time. Okay. Most people have got jobs or more than one job to do. Hi, um, my name's Freya. My question is about what, if anything, could a national education service do about the rise of people just paying for private tutoring? Because I feel like even if you get to a point where people weren't paying for private schools, I feel like there's such a rise at the moment of parents paying incredible amounts of money for their kids to be having extra lessons after school and basically spending, a, you know, most of their childhood 
in lessons. And that obviously does create further inequality because of how expensive some of this is. So, yeah, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Okay, so that's Freya's question. Yeah. Hi, I'm Ali. Um, I, my question was more kind of theoretical about the idea that throughout the whole talk, I've been reflecting on my own school experiences from what you've been saying. And I was just thinking how we all see everything with rose tinted glasses or like it was terrible. You never get a kind of balanced opinion of your schooling. So how much would you kind of encourage that children themselves would have their own say in how they're schooled? Ooh, good question. Children having a say. I went to junior high school in America and you got to at the age of 12 yeah. and you, used to, you got to choose what courses you did. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you couldn't not do maths, yeah. but in geography you could choose a particular thing. It was, it was an amazing yeah. system. Uh, there was one more. I think this lady here, you get the last question. Hi, my name's Patsy Hickman and I, um, my big bugbear is the university fees and the yeah. scandal of 6% on the loans that yeah. the poor kids and the £60,000 that they come out with at the other end. It, I was saying incandescent about it, I can't stand it. Because, you know, the, apparently, I'm not sure about this, but I believe that the Islamic population don't want to take on debt, so they don't borrow, the daughters don't go. And that's, I mean, Helen Keller said the highest result of education is tolerance. And I think we won't have tolerance if we don't get everybody going as much as possible. And with adult education, I'm passionate about that too. So, you know, I'll go on and on and on about it. I think I've said. <laughs> I like those sort of questions because really they're a contribution to the discussion. And well, I didn't, I, you know, I didn't know what the question is. Yeah. I mean, no, yeah, I'm glad it. you asked it, Patsy. I, I want to say something about it at the end. But okay, so Beverly on choice. Yeah. Freya on tutoring. Ali on, um, should children, what, what, voice for children and Patsy on fees and Patsy and her car. yeah so I, actually one of the things that sent me into campaigning was the new labor period was all about parental choice but what I saw was parental choices for those who have the choice and also because I lived in northwest London where there is to use a, phone, a very active schools market parents were choosing all the time but the parents with choice were choosing. So it was either private education or it was to go to some of the grammars dotted around or it was faith, certain faith schools, not all faith schools, but or it was a mix of aptitude tests and so on. And what I saw, it, it ended up meaning that the local secondary school that I wanted to support and we did support was near enough in many ways to a secondary modern. So it was like the, all the ones with choice buggered off and uh, it just incensed me. Now, I know from reading about other parts of the country that there's no choice at all. You go to your local school. So my view is there should be less choice and, and better provision. I think there should be far less choice and investment should go into all schools. I mean, to come back to Finland, people don't worry about it because in the end, all schools are pretty similar. You have really good teachers. You have choice like Ed had in wherever it was, Princeton or wherever that American school was. You have exciting lessons. You have social, you're I making wasn't a Princeton. faith. Well, I wasn't at Princeton at the age of 12. No, no I know no. that. I mean, that you know, at, uh, you were at- Lenny uh, Ruth yeah, Lawrence. Yeah, but, anyway. uh, <laughs> Okay. Uh, but yeah. what I mean is, that, yeah, yeah, you know, that if you provided really good, well-supported schools in good buildings, it, it would take a lot of the problem away. And that's what I think an NES would do. And it would direct resources where they were needed. So we've got a scandalous lack, problem of recruitment and retention of teachers. And an NES could use national powers in a good way to just make sure that those areas, outlying coastal areas, rural areas, that they had really good teachers who were okay. physics. 
thing. Sorry, is that too yeah, long? No, it's right. fine. Freya on the. Uh, what do you do about private tutoring? I, do, I mean, and again, I mean, look, this is a kind of an easy answer. If schools were better in many ways, if we had a slightly different ethos around less competition in education and more edgy education as an enrichment that begins at school but carries on for life, I think private tutoring would shift as a result. That's the best I can do on that. Ali on. And I'm all for. For student voice. Yeah. I mean, I think if you look at cooperative academies, so there's all sorts of academies, there, lots of schools give students a chance to run their own, run elements of the school, think about what they're going to have to eat. I went to visit a school in Surrey that's surrounded by selective schools, and, it was, and I was sat with five 12 or 13 year olds who were given particular responsibilities and they told me how their school worked in this way and that and they were so articulate and on top of it and I do think oracy the development Definitely. of skill is really really important and then Patsy just totally agree with you Patsy I mean I, I want to just pause briefly on Patsy's point because I think this is really important about the debate about higher education because I'm very sympathetic to Peter who said we've got to invest the money in early years it's collapsing and so on but and this is kind of where I want to sort of more or less finish, but I think it's kind of important. The thing about the fees is not just the debt. No. It's also the marketization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's happened and to universities? One, what's happened to universities? Yeah. And yeah. I think that's, I think, you know, in a way we can look at it in a very kind of, in a kind of quite a narrow way, which is, look, you know, if you want less inequality, invest in the early years, why are we bothering with, you know, making tuition free? But I think that is kind of missing the point, isn't it? Or about what it does to our society, what yeah. it does to and yeah, students what, and the whole educational experience, yeah. and then what it does to universities, which are supposed to be centres of learning, not centres of consumerism. Well, I think what's happened at both ends is because of marketisation and lack of state resources, you've got a decline in sort of risk discovery and learning for learning's sake, and an increase in kind of dubious metrics and arid forms of judgment. And I think the university experience has been degraded by marketisation. You're absolutely right. And also this gap between junior lecturers are all on these part-time contracts and these, you know, even Andrew Adonis says that, overpaid vice chancellors. And that's what happens in a market, winners and losers. So I absolutely agree with you. But you know what they say, the reason that, <laughs> it's a, quite a funny joke, I think there was an argument within the Labour front bench about are you going to put more money into early years or are you going to get rid yeah. of tuition fees? And they chose tuition fees and as some cynics say it's because toddlers don't, aren't part of momentum. <laughs> and they thought it would get the... Um, but I don't think that's quite fair. But they should be doing both. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but I think it's important to underline that this is a broader debate. I want to ask you one final question, which is uh, whether you're optimistic. I'm always optimistic. Because... If you what do, are people? What are people who are in this audience or listening to this uh, on their podcast? What should they go and do? Well, I think if if there's something as people have raised that what, that worries you, do something about it. I mean, this is you know in the end why political traditions are optimistic. Do something about it. But I'm also optimistic because I think we are at the end of a period where the command control marketization experiment has failed in so many ways. So we're in a space, as you would say, Ed, you're good on your spaces. We're in a space where we now can discuss, and it's not, I don't have the answers to everything, nobody does, where we can start to shape something different. Now that is an optimistic space to be in. Ladies and gentlemen, can you join me in thanking Melissa Ben for a brilliant Thank you, Chinese weather. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk 
or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.